Fostering teenagers might seem like one of the toughest jobs in the world, but my guest this week seems to have taken it in her stride. Andy Hyder from Canesham near Bristol is a fearless foster parent. Over three decades, she's taken in around 150 teenagers, all while raising three boys of her own as a single parent. And in that time, she's seen pretty much everything. The young people Andy looked after were often incredibly vulnerable with challenging behaviour. I think that when they come to me, they are like, a, the only way I can describe it is like a tightly wound up spring. And probably for the first six months, they're going to throw everything at me. When you can see that tightly wound up spring, sort of loosening, becoming more relaxed, that's when you know you can start to make a difference in their life. I'm Ian Wright, and from something else, this is Everyday People. I recorded this conversation with Andy remotely. When you was a teenager, what was you like as a teenager? Oh, I was just having the best time ever in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> the 60s, man. The 60s, I was man. Born in the 60s. I was born in the 60s. I was born in 63. Were you? You yes. look about 45. <laughs> Everybody talks about the 60s, even when my mum, when she did finally have to open up and talk about stuff, the 60s as a teenager must have been amazing. Yeah, it was just brilliant, you know, yeah. No, you have to tell me more. What was you doing? What was you doing? Well, what the, kind of music was you listening to and everything? I need to find out. The pill was invented. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we all took advantage of that. Um, oh my gosh. I find like fostering just unbelievable. Anybody who, who can take on such... Um, an important role in people's lives that they don't know. I, I find it fascinating. How did it start for you? What, what, how did it start? It started in a, in a mad way. So I had been married twice. Both marriages had broken down and I was struggling financially, but I had three boys of my own. And although my older two boys um, could have coped with me being out at work and them coming home to an empty house, my youngest one certainly couldn't have done. How did you deal with the fact that there wasn't a, a man around to kind of give him that kind of like, I don't know, the the kind of tactical love that he was maybe needed from his dad at the well, time. Well, you know that, Ian, don't you? You, you know, You know that Absolutely. all kids need their father. You know, the thing, the reason why I say it, Andy, is because I remember when I was younger, my stepdad was in and around, but he was very, very, you know, we didn't see him hardly ever. My dad, my real dad, I saw in like five and six year bursts. But what I remember more than anything, um, Andy, is how sad my mum was. A lot of the time, you know, you just see her staring into yeah, nowhere. And yeah. I always remember her just being very solemn. And I bet if you asked my boys, they'd say the same thing because mm. because I was very, very sad. You know, you mentioned um, the financial side of it. What was the kind of financial problems you, you had at the time? Well, because my marriage had broken down and I wasn't working, I had, mm -hmm. I had just benefits to live on. So I knew mm. I needed to earn money and I needed a job right. that I could do working from home. So I was in the library, local library, and a bookmark fell out. 
Wow. I'd, I'd like to say, a, you know, big light came down from the sky, but it was a bookmark, actually. And uh, yeah, the bookmark was advertising as, uh, the first scheme that they paid foster carers to do. So it was called right. Teen Care. And it was specifically for teenagers because I think the local authorities were finding that nobody wanted teenagers. And I, I do remember that the fee element... Nowadays, you wouldn't think, well, what's that? It was £60 a week. To me, that was a lot of money. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. How did you finally get? Okay, I'm gonna go and do it because I've I've read something. About you said you like a hundred people went for it, and only two of you took uh, foster yeah, children. Yeah, yeah. When I went to that initial meeting that you're talking about, when in, out of a hundred people inquiring about it, mm-hmm. thinking that they had an interest, there were only two of us. I was told there were only two of us that came through, but I'd gone home and said to my boys, not my youngest one, because I felt he was too young to understand what I was mm-hmm. doing, but to the older two. Um, I talked to them about going to the meeting before and they said, go for it, mum. So mm. when I got home, I said, no, I don't think it's for us. And the thing that had put me off was that a social worker spoke at that meeting about the way that different behaviour comes out for different reasons and what we might have to, mm. to cope with. And she talked about children smearing on, on the walls in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, And That's I just thought, no, nah, I don't think I could do that. Do you think that when you left there, you said, no, this is not for... This is not for me. It's not for us. Ah, and then, no. So then it was a social mm. worker who must have seen something in me. I don't know what. Right. And he pursued me. I didn't go back. I didn't. How long did he pursue you for? As long as it took him to persuade me to go on to the training course, I guess. It worked. And he went on the training course. And within a few months, she was ready to welcome her first foster child into her home. What was it like at the start, though, when the first person you took in what were they like and what was it like when they came into the house and and what, what did you learn from him having that that first foster child in? I, I learned how difficult it had been for him. I'm going to cry now. I learned how difficult it had been for him when he lived at home with a, with a stepfather. That he, no, no, it wasn't a stepfather. It was his natural father. He had a stepmother mm. uh, with, but with a father that he that he ha- seemed to hate him rather than he hated the father. The father seemed to hate right. him. Um uh, you know, he wet he wet the bed. Um, then again, he wouldn't have wet the bed if he hadn't been in such a horrible situation. No, you know, when I w- when I was in and around from nine to eleven, um, I remember it was a time where my brothers didn't want me to sleep in the bedroom because I had a spell of mm. that. Mm. But like, it wasn't something that um, my mum she just used to shout at me to the point where I'd sleep on the floor yeah. instead of sleeping yeah. in the yeah. bed. How how did you deal with 
with him bedwetting. Oh, that's, that's just so heartbreaking for you, Ian. Um, well, I did, I did a practical thing. I got a blanket that um, buzzed at the first drop yes. of moisture. Um, right. And then that would wake the child up. But, you know, oh, but, it, but it worked. And nobody, and nobody else in the house knew that he had it. Nobody else. Right. It was only between me and him. That's yeah. amazing. You know some of the some of the, the early days with the other kids just moving because you mentioned that you had five at one stage. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like when you've got that many different characters? And what were they? What were they like? Did they lash out? Did any of them lash out? What was it like when they got angry? And how did you deal with that being a stranger to them, but you're obviously looking after them? I guess by the time I was fostering five, because you've got to think about what whether the local authority aren't going to put five kids with me with me if, if they think I can't cope. I think that when they come to me, they are like, a, the only way I can describe it is like a tightly wound up spring. Mm. And probably for the first six months, they're going to throw everything at me because they've had numerous breakdowns in placements before. They haven't all necessarily come directly from home. They've gone to another foster carer who hasn't been able to cope with them. And then another one that hasn't coped. And so they don't see that I'm going to be any different. They think I'm going to chuck them out as well. So they think, yeah. well, what the heck? So they'll throw every bit of bad behavior at me, probably for the, the first six months. But when you can see that tightly wound up spring, sort of loosening, becoming more mm. relaxed, that's when you know you can start to make a difference in their life, that they're beginning to feel, well, okay, you know, I did this to her and, and that, and she hasn't chucked me out yet. So maybe it is going to be different this time. As time went on, Andy realised something. She was actually pretty good at this fostering game. She even renovated her home so she could take in more young people. You started off fostering boys. What was it like fostering girls? Because you've had boys, obviously. What's it like fostering girls? So when I so when I started and finished the training, you know, when I first applied to be a foster carer, so I then said to the social worker that was doing my assessment, um, but. Uh, I want to have girls, please. You know, I've got three boys. I don't think I want to foster boys. So I want to foster girls. For the first five years, I had all boys. (laughs) (laughs) One of the first girls you fosters was Claire. Let's hear a clip from what Claire has to say. I lived with my parents, with my mum and my stepdad. I got obviously got to my teens, um, you know, and like most teens. It's a bit of crazy times, isn't it? I sort of got in with the wrong crowd. I mean, I never, never ever got into drugs or anything like that. Um, just got in with the wrong crowd. And my dad was an army man, so, you know, he was quite quite a strict man. And I think I just retaliated and sort of ran away from home. I then got arrested um, for being drunk at the age of 15. Um, and that was a really big thing back then, especially for my parents and... You know, they they didn't want me back home. So from the police station, I actually went to Andy's house. I was scared. I, I never used to, I used to just eat pot noodles. <laughs> like I just used to sit in my room and just eat pot noodles. I wouldn't eat anything else. I was a tiny, tiny little thing. And then, you know, eventually I'd sort of come out of myself and... And yeah, Andy was amazing. I, you know, I could, I could go to her and I could tell her anything. One that always sticks in my head as clear as day is when she took us all to Greece. I think there was about eight of us. 
that was obviously my first ever holiday abroad. And that was absolutely amazing. And, you know, crazy, <laughs> crazy as well, because there were so many of us. My gosh, so... What were they doing letting so, me take eight kids to <laughs> <they call> <laughs> So, so you got all these eight kids, you know their different personalities, everything, what they're like, what they're they were, they about. Weren't, they and, weren't all looked after kids. I think four were looked after kids. And then I also yeah. had two of my own sons, uh-huh. a friend of one of them, next door neighbour. Mm-hmm. But there were, there might be... Was it you on your yeah, own? Yeah, just me. You take, just me, always my me on my gosh. own. gosh. Yeah. What was it like? Mad. <laughs> How did you? We nearly, that's we nearly, crazy. We nearly got chucked out of the apartment. The the, the, <laughs> the the couple of the boys had gone out in the evening and they'd gone into some club or some bar and they were doing uh-huh. uh, the the dance of the flaming assholes. Where <laughs> in this club or the bar where they went, um, the people on the stage put toilet paper between the pulled down their trousers, obviously put. Toilet paper between the cheeks of their bum, their own bums, mm, and then somebody right. would light the toilet paper, and the one who won was the one who held it long, long enough before the flame. <laughs> so they called, they called it the dance of the flaming assholes. So when they came back to the apartment, and we had we were all in like different apartments, their apartment, their balcony um, looked out over the awning of the shop below, and so they were out on the balcony doing. The dance of the flaming arsenals, and, and the toilet paper blew away down onto the or- caught fire of the on the awning of the. Oh, oh my, my God. goodness gracious! Yeah. We need to go check out. I was going to ask you about Claire because she's mentioned wonderful there, Claire having wonderful. having to go straight from the police, the police station, station to, me. Yeah. to come to you. What, what was it like her coming? She said she was just shy and just at pot noodles. Yeah. What was it like trying to? To open to for, to get her to open up and speak to you, what was that like? She says to me that she learned so much from the way that I was with all of them that mm. when her own children hit their teens, she could have been strict like the way it was when she was in her teens at home and why it all broke down because they were being overly strict with her. And she said she learned a lot from living with me because I had a different approach. And she said when her kids then became teenagers, that's how she was with them. And and it went wow. really well. You know your house. Um, what was your house like? Mad house. I'm trying to get a picture of your I house. Was, I was I, waiting I, for the neighbours to come knocking on the door with a petition that they had all signed to get us thrown out of the street. That's what I was expecting. But they, wow. But they, my next door neighbour, her husband had got some new jeans, and um, mm. <laughs> and he was very fussy about his jeans and very fussy about the fit. Anyway, she'd wash them and she'd put them on the line and they'd gone missing. <laughs> so she said, Andy, I don't like to say this to you. I don't want to point fingers, but Roger's jeans have gone missing off the line. Well, when she said that, it flashed into my head that when I took my young person, a young mm. lad, um, mm to school or wherever I was taking him that day. As I was driving, I looked across and I and I said, oh, that's lovely jeans that you've got on. <laughs> I said, when did you, I didn't buy those for you. When did you, when did you get them? Anyway, he made some, or he bought, it off a, bought them off a friend. So I, that was it. I didn't think any more about it until she said that to me. Oh, and then yeah. I'll, I'll never forget. I had to go and pick him up that evening. And I, yeah. I'd taken a pair of his own jeans with me. And I just said to him, off. I can see his face now. I can see his face he now. He knew. Just off. Take them off. And I shoved the, his own at him. And he, he just sat in the car and he just took them off. 
Back in a moment. The police knew you really well because did you have to go there a lot to... Every day. To, oh, my God. <laughs> what, Andy, I'm, I'm absolutely, like, flabbergasted how you... you you continue to do it. And I, I, I commend you. I commend you. But even when all that's happening, what made you continue to do it for those kids having to go to police oh, station? Ian, I was Burnley well into it by then. It was a way of life. It honestly... But you never gave up no, on them? No, I, I didn't give up on them. I wouldn't give up on them because that I worked that out. When I first started, I thought to myself, before I'd had any training, I thought to myself, now... If, I'm if I find this really, really hard work and they're going to be with me until they're 18 and say they come to me at 13 because it was only teenagers that I fostered, um, then I've got five years of really, really bad behaviour. And so I never, I never thought if, if I find it really hard or if their behaviour is really bad, well, then I just say I'm not going to do it anymore. I just worked out how many years I would have to put up with it. Oh my God, you know something? We've got a clip from the police. Let's listen to what they say. So my name is Nigel Wright, and uh, many years ago I was the senior police officer at the local police station in Canesham, just between Bristol and Bath. I was at Canesham for about a week working, um, and during that time I saw this lady who knew all the passcodes to get through the doors at the police station, so she would come through the front office of the police station and knew the passcodes. <laughs> She'd come through the prisoner entrance and knew the passcodes for the prisoner entrance, and she'd walk through the police station uh, she'd be in the canteen making cups of tea. She'd be in the briefing rooms looking at all the photographs and saying, oh, I know them, I know them, I know them. And I asked um, my secretary and I said, who is that person? And Sonia said, well, that's Andy Hyder. She runs the place. <laughs> <laughs> it became clear very quickly that she was, um, uh, she was a foster carer. Um, but she, was a, she wasn't a foster carer as you would have imagined a, a foster carer to be. I would sort of describe her as being somebody who was very comfortable in her own skin. She would be wearing long sort of multicoloured skirts and in the summer she wouldn't be wearing any shoes. Um, and because she had this sort of exceptionally young outlook, children would relate to that. There's one example where uh, some, some of the kids had broken into a house and stolen some jewellery. Um, and in order to get the jewellery back, Andy promised them that she would double their pocket money if they returned the jewellery to her so that she could return it to wow. the, the people that had become the victim and what, of the What crime. happened when the children got into trouble with the law? Is that the kind of stuff you had to do? I would have to wear a, a lot of different hats, really, because I had to support the child in interview when they were being interviewed. Mm. So I had to be the what, what's called the appropriate adult. Um I had to also be the the mother figure because they would, of course, be stressed or angry or, you know, all these different things because they'd been caught um, yeah. and they'd be in fear of going to court. And then I'd have to go to court with them. And then I'd have to wear a different hat then because I would have to persuade the magistrate that because of what had happened to them in their early years were yeah. the reasons why they behaved in this way. Um, and I remember the uh, the chief magistrate in at Bath saying to me, Andy, whenever I see that you're there, I don't worry anymore. 
I, she said to me, I, I always think she'll look after them. I'll send them back home. So rather than give them, a, what she meant was rather than give them a custodial sentence, she'd yes. send them back to me. And they, she knows she trusted She trusted you. me, she, yes. Because, That's amazing. Because I did work with the police and I did grasp the kids up because I do believe yes. that it's of no help to them at all. I would never cover up for anything that they did wrong. If they did, did something wrong and I found out about it, then I would go to the police. And that's why we had a really good working relationship. And they, the police helped me so much because when I was, you know, being chased around the house with a knife or whatever, um, the police were, were always there for me. So it, it worked both ways. It worked really well. And did that, and, and, and that happened, didn't it? Chase around a knife. What happened? How do you deal with a situation where you're chased around a, um, where you continue to do the job when you're, being chased around your house with a Oh, knife. but she'd had such an... I could just go make excuses for her. She'd had such an awful childhood. What happened in the instant while she was doing that? Was you trying to help her? She lost frust She was frustrated think, with I, you? Yeah, I think that was the occasion when um, she was arguing with me about something and she'd gone into... She'd gone into her bedroom and she'd got a packet of ready-break, which is like porridge. It's like an instant yeah, porridge, yeah. Um, but it's much finer than the porridge oats. So it's quite powdery. And she threw right. this box um, at me and it just, I ducked, it just banged against the, the wall and it was like snow all over the landing floor. And mm. um, my youngest son was his, we'd had a loft extension built. So I, cause I felt that George needed to be able to study and get on with his schoolwork. And so he was sort of a little bit up and out of the way when all of this sort of stuff would be going on. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so she threw that at me. And then she went into her room and she slammed the door. And so George came down the stairs. He was just halfway down the stairs. And he said to me, um, who did that? So I said the name of the young person that had done it. Mm. And he said, uh, well, he said, what, what any of my children would have said, what your children probably would have said. He yeah. said, um, well, I hope you're going to make her clear it up. So she ran out with a carving knife in her hand. Oh, yeah. God. Was you scared? Yes, yes, of course. What did your son say to you after that situation calms down and she goes into the room, you go, you speak to your son. Is he saying, Mum, come on, man, this is it. This is, well, I, I do, on that occasion, I do remember that I can see him now sitting on his bed um, and she'd come up to his room. I'd gone, I was up there as well. And I could see his, his knees were shaking. He was really, really scared. Oh, um, she was trying to get to him with knife. And I screamed mm. for one of the other foster kids to dial the police, dial 999. Yes. Which they did. And the police came. Um, and then she got <clears throat> moved out. So she went into a, a local children's home. And the next morning, uh, the phone rang and she was on the end of the phone and she was telling me she was sorry. And I'm saying to her, that's, that's all right, darling. It's okay. It's all right. You know, it, it's done. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll try to not get to a stage where you feel that angry again. And, yes. uh, so she said, well, can I come home? So I said, of course you can come home. I said, but it's not me that you need to be saying sorry to. You need to be saying sorry to George. And so she said, let put him on the phone. I want to say sorry to him. So I got him on the phone. And that's the only time that I cried. I didn't cry when it was all going on because I had to be strong then. But to hear yes. my youngest son saying, that's fine. That's fine. Honestly, that's fine. Oh, you come yeah. on home. That's fine. We forget all about it. I was so proud of him. It's, it's oh, My kids fantastic. have been amazing. But then, you know... Ian, people used to say to me, aren't you worried about the impact that 
all these kids are going to have on your own children. And I, I didn't know whether I believed what I was. My answer used to be, well, um, I think it's going to be a positive experience for them because if I hadn't fostered, they would have grown up with just other middle class kids and they wouldn't have known what lots of other kids go through. So, you know, I think it's going to be a positive experience. And I think it has been because they've grown up into all my three boys have grown up into such fantastic understanding adults. Yeah, let's hear from Ben. Oh. One of the things that, that mum never did as a foster care, in, in 35 years, she never, ever got rid of a foster child. Some left, some went back to live with their parents because they'd made such, you know, amazing progress. Um, you know, but never, ever did she say, you're gone. And, and for children that went, that end up in care, most of the time they've been rejected. So when a kid does something wrong, they don't like to face the consequences of, of what's going to happen because they feel someone's going to shout, someone's going to bore, and someone will kick them out and send them to a new home. And, and the reason they'd smash up their room is so that they could get kicked out. They didn't want to deal with the problem that they were trying to deal with. They'd get kicked out and they'd move somewhere else, clean slate, start again. Well, mum wouldn't do that. So that, for me, sounds like the kids... The kids would do that on purpose so they could just go somewhere else, but you didn't give them the opportunity to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. You know something? You, you mentioned um, about taking the chance with your, you know, bringing people in and how it's going to affect your boys. Just listening to just Ben mm -mm. speak mm -mm. there. He sounds amazing. amazing. Loved, he's a teacher he now, He is, right? yeah, yeah. You must be so proud because you took, you took that chance, Andy, because... Let's face it, now you look at those people and I'm sure you're proud of most of them with what they've gone on to do. And you took a chance by putting maybe your own kids at risk. I guess I did in some cases, yeah. But I, w I was convinced that, that it would be a positive experience for them in the, in the long oh, wow. term. Why was you so confident about that? Probably because I had to believe it. Had to tell that to myself to, to be able to carry on. Because if I thought to myself, oh, well, this is, you know, this is going to be really damaging for my children. Well, then I, could, I wouldn't have been able to do it, would I? And look, and they've proved, they've proved it, haven't yes. they? Yes, yeah. they have. Listen to him there. But were there nights when you was in the bedroom when everybody's gone to bed where you're, you're sitting there thinking, oh, gosh. What am I doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, you know, when you know somebody is kicking off and, um, and maybe you've, You've calmed them down enough to be able to go in and, you know, shut your door or or whatever. And But you can feel your heart beating so fast. Um, yeah, there, there were times like that. But but in the long run, we, um, we did have fun times. And, mm -hmm. and now I've got this, you know, ever, ever extended family uh, who I'm still in touch with. And what an extended family Andy has. She's lost count of the number of teenagers she's fostered over the years, but she thinks it's somewhere in the region of 150. 2020 was a landmark year for Andy. Not only did she retire from fostering, but she was also recognised for her services. So in March 2020, you receive an MBE. So did you. Um, for yourself. So yeah, but like you know, what I mean, my I I can't. Mine mine doesn't feel the same. I don't feel worthy. I can't. Don't be so silly. I, I can't score goals. No, 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 no. 
No, no, no. You know what? I would not put it past you if they put you in the situation. <laughs> but I know one thing. I would not be able to foster like you have done. And was it Ben? Was it Ben that nominated Ben nominated you? Ben? me, yes. Wow. Yeah. I... Ben said to me when he watched, you know, you get the video, don't you, to watch back. Yeah. When he watched the video, he said, Mum, he said, you made a mistake. I said, I didn't. Oh, no. I didn't. You don't speak until the Queen speaks. Mm-mm. The Queen speaks first, yes. so you don't speak. When I got when I got there in front of her, I didn't wait for her to speak. Straight away, I said to her, "Oh, I'm so excited that it's you." <laughs> <laughs> and she hadn't said a word. <laughs> That's magnificent. And and you retired and now. I've you retired, retired from fostering. Yeah. What do you What do you do now? And what do, oh, you yeah, must been, be we've, missing. We've been in lockdown ever since. Don't ask me. What do I do? What's it like being retired from it after everything? What you've been through? Was it thirty? How many it's years? Thirty-seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Before, just before I retired, the young person that I had living with me, the f- foster child that I had living with me, I had fostered her mother. <gasps> True. Oh my God. How's that work out for you? What's, Wild, what's that mean? She, because the, the, mother, the mother, I fostered the mother and her twin sister. And then they went on and had their own lives when they left me and had their own children. Um, but when uh, one of them found that she wasn't coping with her teenager, her teenage daughter, um, and so she told social services, I guess, that she wasn't coping and it was decided that she needed to go, the daughter needed to go into care. Um, and she said that she wasn't prepared to accept any other foster care for her daughter other than me. Well, I never have a vacancy ever. But as it happened, she rang me and I knew I had a young person that was going to be leaving in the January and she'd run me just mm. before the Christmas of that year. And so she hung on. She said, I'm only going to let her go to Andy's. And and so the daughter came to me. So that, that was a different experience again. That is yeah. really, that's really wild, yeah. Andy. That, yeah. So I'm trying to get my head around that one, mm. Andy, because obviously she went through foster children and then uh, she couldn't what she couldn't uh, cope and then, with and then you know when it was all happening and, and the daughter was coming to me and the mother was filling out all the papers and everything and she was breaking her heart and she was saying I promised I promised that I would never let this happen to my children because it, it had happened to her, to her and she said yeah. she promised but she was just in a situation where she couldn't cope anymore and you was there. And I was there. Wasn't there kind of a, um, a kind of an emotional moment or something where once the door closes, I know it's pan- the pandemic and it's in this time, there's so much more in your mind. And I get the impression that you don't dwell on that stuff, what's great stuff. You just get on with it because it's the right thing to do. But Well, usually, usually you, uh, there's somebody else moving mm. in as fast as one is moving out. But it, it, was, yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't this, this time. time, no. And so that, that so was, that I think, and I think that's affected me. It's not been easy this, this summer. And I think a lot of it is to do with me knowing that, you know, that, that part of my life is over now. Yeah. Mm. Let's, let's hear a clip of Ben. People always think mum's quite loud and, and, and very outgoing, but, I think that she's actually quite, it's quite an introvert. She quite likes being on her own. She quite likes space. Uh, and so I think that there is, there is a part of her that performs <laughs> when she needs to. There were times when she had to put on a smiley face and be happy when she actually wasn't. There were times when she had to look like she was caring when she was so tired and just wanted to go to bed. And, and she's probably very good at, at, at managing herself in those situations because she's done 
pretty much everything on her own. Just recognise what she's done have, have been awesome. And and we we're too proud. In what's been such a rubbish year, you know that that for her has been amazing. <laughs> Made me cry again here now. He's, oh, bless <clears throat> That's amazing. You know what? Just listening oh. to Ben speak about mm. you and, you know, him saying that, you know, sometimes you're smiling when you're really sad, when you, you know, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're absolutely shattered, but you have to stay up. You know, there was times when I was at a certain age, I'd say between, between nine and, and 15, 16, where you are the person I probably wanted to be with. You'd have been that person. There you go. There you go. In a different time, in a different place. In a, yes. Yeah, it would have been different. Yeah. You know something? It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, listening to Ben, listening to everything, listening to what you're saying, listening to what you've done. I'd love, I, I really want to meet you in the flesh. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Yes, we yeah. will. Because this pandemic won't last forever. Of course, forever. absolutely not. I, I really, really feel like I have to meet you. Good, that, that would be wonderful. If you think you've got what it takes to foster a child, head to our show notes to learn more about fostering. Next time on Everyday People, the couple mentoring the artists of the future. Do you know, I've forgotten all about this, it's been so long. But every Saturday, every other Saturday, I'd meet them at Park Royal Station. Drive them up to Birmingham. I'd be driving a splitter bus. <laughs> so in the week, I'd be booking gigs. I'd be doing my Photoshop, you know, trying to create press packs and write press releases and all of that. And then come the Saturday, I'd pick up the bus um, right. around the corner drive it up to Park Royal and, and wait for these teenagers who were inevitably late. Mm. And arguing. And, then, and arguing. Mm. And then drive up the M1 or the M40 up to Birmingham to take them to, to do a jam session. If you like what you've heard so far and think you've got an amazing story to tell, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at everydaypeople at somethingelse.com. That's everydaypeople at somethingelse.com without the G. Everyday People is a Something Else production, hosted by me, Ian Wright. This episode was produced by Paul Smith. The series producer is Jade Scott. Our assistant producer is Grace Laker. Our executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Our sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. With thanks to Chris Skinner and Steve Ackerman. Listener.